I probably have Nando's once a year, but I've never. It's very hard to have dead chicken. I wouldn't ever say chicken's dead. There's just it's just bad chicken is still better than most things. <laughs> Nando's is just so blech. It's like it'll do if there's nothing else that's close by, but it's just it's not great. And I'll I'll never understand the nation's fascination with it. It's just go well, down to Sam's Chicken. I Sam's got better chicken than Nando's. Go down to Listen, good, old, good old American Dixie chicken. How about that? <laughs> nah, no way. Not unless you want to spend the next day on the toilet. Are you normal? <laughs> nah, no way. Are you normal? <laughs> Absolutely not. Hello, 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 hello. We are back. Guess what month it is? So supposed to be that gap was silent, and you know what silence is? It's Black Black History Month. I tried to look back in time to see when the first Black History Month was. The first in America was in 1969 in the UK. Because acknowledging Black people is only a recent thing, it's not even possible to see when it started. I mean, a lot of people don't observe it anyway, so. We're not going to let that deter us. October's going to be a month of increased activity for us through all our channels. We're moving to weekly pods with extra content in all our social channels. So there's going to be plenty for you to see and hear. So check all that out. We're all back in the house this week. I'll start with you, Nate. How are you? I'm good, man. Um, yeah, things are going well. Had some good news at work. Enjoying being out on my bike whilst uh, it's still light enough. And yeah. Getting, away, getting on with it. Bro, you're stacking up those wins. Having a good time with it, aren't you? That's it. Try to collect them. Try to collect them all. Dom, how are you, mate? Mate, I'm, I'm tip-top. I'm tip-top. 14 years, 15 years maybe, and we've finally replaced Patrick Vieira. We've finally <laughs> replaced Patrick Vieira. So I am on cloud nine still until Thomas Party inevitably disappoints me at some stage but until then i'm happy as larry of course new signing for the gunners we're just waiting on that deneo remix (laughs) 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 i was so close to coming in some kente today man (laughs) you're rocking the arsenal way which is just as good alana how are you this week i am Excellent. Uh, I am about to submit my visa extension application because, you know, I'm trying to be like you guys, <laughs> trying to be a Brit, slowly but, uh, slowly but surely. One of us. Uh, keeping fit, staying positive. Um, and I'm really excited for this ex- episode, actually, because I, uh, I feel like I'm going to be a student today. Just as a heads up, I don't know if you will end up getting the UK passport, but the British passport doesn't quite bang like it used to. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it will still provide a provide more uh, access than the. It's blue like yours passport. now as well. It's the same color as your original one now as well. Mm, mm. I don't know how I feel about that. <laughs> They've got the passports back, lads. <laughs> I can't wait. I cannot wait. Angelo, how are you, my brother? Yeah, doing very, very well. Um, Obviously keeping up with putting out content for Black Guys in a Box, putting out content for Black Boris and other characters, getting some really decent feedback. Yeah, you know, it's always good when you've signed something on a dotted line and there is a guarantee of payment. But more than that, just leaning into 
the creative stuff and uh, October always brings a bump to the pay packet because local places realise that I'm black and can speak and they can cross off a diversity quota by having me in so yeah feeling good what about yourself Dan? I'm good I'm good I was just gonna say you mentioned last pub you had some ink drying are you even able to remotely talk the things going on that? Uh, no, no, to the point that man had a second reworded contract sent out. So all I'm going to say is that I have signed a contract. I'm not going to say anything more than that because I can't. That's fair, that's fair. Protect the bag at all costs. Like you say, there's a lot going on. Guys, you need to check Black Boris and our own podcast channels for this guy's stuff. By now you've probably seen it on BBC3, BBC News... Probably World Star 2 by now, GRM. But Black Boris, Black Boris has been out here, out here in the recording studio, laying down bars. Check the channels and you'll see what I'm talking about. To your question, Angelo, yeah, I'm good. I've had a little break. Channeled my inner Tom Harriet Thompson and jetted to Corfu for a couple of Cavos. days. Cavos. Other side of the island to Cavos, thanks. <laughs> Other side of the island. I didn't pack any penicillin, so I steered well clear. Then two pound fish balls <laughs> and shark skirts. <laughs> mate, now mate, it's nice. About 30 odd degrees and I'm about refreshed. Now, as I mentioned at the top, we've tried to create themed weeks for Black History Month and this week centres around Black Britain. That is loosely those who are thriving now and making it a more entertaining place to be, as well as those who laid the foundations in the past without a blueprint. I think as per the last census, black people in the UK were 3% or thereabouts of the population. And that engenders a sense of community and family still. We don't all look the same, but weirdly, we feel like we know each other. And seeing an extended family member win feels fantastic. To uh, paraphrase my man Marv Abbey, fantastic. For the first topic this week, we're going to talk about a man who embodies this. I'm talking about your man righty dom, your man in the port by a national treasure. So we're going to explore what he means to black football hands in particular, his place within black culture, and also the effect of the example he's set in the media, moving the way he does. I'll open the mics up to you, Nate. Yeah, well, I think before I touch on Ian Wright, I think it's timeline. I probably wasn't old enough to see him, you know, really play um, and, you know, do live through it. Um, but every kind of, you know, when I, I'm an Arsenal fan and, you know, when I look at the generation that I really fell in love with it, you know, Omri, Ashley Cole, Vieira, they were all paying homage to, to him. And I think on another point, we've touched on it in previous pods, there's not many black Britons you can look up to other than kind of sports, you know, sports stars and comedians and um, musicians. But I think one of the things that I love about him is he's just so, he's so human, right? Like I remember one of the videos when he bumps into his old teacher, I'm sure everyone's seen it. And you just see this, you know, superstar, global icon, just absolutely humbled, flawed, and, and just so so real and so honest. And I think that's what, you know, really makes him stand out as, as for me as a cultural kind of icon is he's unapologetically him. He's just, he enjoys himself. He enjoys everything. It's so clear, he, you know, he's enjoying it. And I think he's, um, he's always paying it forward. He's always doing a little bit for everyone else. There are two points I'll make in this topic on how I, th- what, what, how I think of Ian Wright. The first is goodness as a person. It shows itself in so many ways. There's a few weeks ago when he defended Alex Scott and Mika Richards from abuse they're getting online based on a story they'd be replacing three of the white presenters on Soccer Saturday. Blackwashing. P 
people were up in arms. Funnily enough, I don't remember being up in arms when George Best, Frank McLintock and Rod Marsh were replaced last time round with three other white people. Guess what? Tuned in last week. Weirdly, there were three other white people and Quinton Morrison, which is the same as before. Just, just an example of how people use any excuse to be outraged about a changing world. And what was so mad about that is, sorry, just before we go on there, Alex Scott and Michael Richards are too good to be on Gillette Soccer Saturday. Gillette Soccer Saturday is the B class. It's it's the ones that aren't quite at that that top level for Monday Night Football, um, for what is it, Super Sunday. They're the level beneath. Micah and Alex are two of the best in the game. So if they were ever going to replace anyone, it's Jamie Redknapp who's got to watch his neck. It's not these old men in the studio. Let's be honest. To his fundamental goodness as a person, that showed itself through there, and you can see how he cares about young black people in his actions. So most people know him as Sean and Bradley Wright Phillips' dad. He adopted Sean when Sean was three, when Ian, Ian was about, what, must have been like 22, 20 plus one years old. And... That's unthinkable now when you think about how people think of, of footballers as being whatless and brainless and selfish and greedy and how they think of young people nowadays. You just wouldn't think, I mean, I wouldn't think of it. It's it's That shows a really advanced, mature person, again, who does care about other people. It doesn't make him maybe better than anyone else, but it gives you an indication of the character and type of person he is. And that's why I'm pr- proud of the regard that he's holding now. And I know t- about 20 years ago, he felt he'd become disconnected from his background and his roots and did something to change that. Now his manager's black, he's black, uh, the majority of his team's black, and they keep him plugged into his background and the culture. And you see him doing so, so much work for loads of brands, including Adidas. You know, he, he is the guy. He is the guy. His phone will not stop ringing. And... That's all because he didn't want to drift away from who he was and now he's able to be authentically himself. So, enough love to Ian Wright. Big time, big time. I think and as an Arsenal fan as well. So, for me, a little bit older than you, Nate, so I do remember the, the back end of his Arsenal days. And I think he was probably the first Arsenal hero that I had. And I have and probably an equal amount of memories of him playing football as I do of him being a TV personality. Because if you remember, he used to be on... Um, he used to be on there, Think It's All Over. Um, he's been on all those kind of shows. I think he had his own show at some stage. I think he was a Gladiators presenter. He's done a little bit here, there and everywhere. And the thing that always got me about writing, I think the reason that it kind of has gone beyond a partisan nature now, so it's not a case of I don't like writing because he played for Arsenal, is because I think to black people, he is such a firm representation of black British and black Britishness because... In him being himself, he's one of the first presenters that we had on sports TV shows over here who was happy to be himself, who was happy to play without a script. I mean, if you remember watching him when he was doing the punditry for England when Sean was playing, for instance, it was always, get Sean on, I don't know what he's playing at, and always properly going with his own personality. And that kind of thing is, for all of us in here, I mean, we're all US sports fans. And when you watch a US sports show, the hosts have their own personality and they're allowed to run with their own personality. And I think that's something that is really missing within UK sports. And Wrighty has always been the anomaly there. He's always been the one, the odd one out. To the point that he's not everyone's cup of tea, but him in terms of the way that he represents himself in the media, on the football pitch, how he'd be boggling with the man then when he scored. You could always see it in his flair, in the way that he represented himself on the field, off the field. 
his flashiness, his clothes, him playing football with a with a necklace on. <laughs> like, like I remember I had a, um, an Ian Wright action figure when I was younger, and it was the only one that came with a necklace on <laughs> because it was one of his trademarks to play with that chain. And yeah, I mean, he's always and will always be one of my idols because of just the fact that I'm a gooner and the fact that he was himself. And we call him one of the nation's uncles now. He's always been Uncle Ian to any Arsenal fan. And I was actually talking to a couple of people about this just yesterday. It's no surprise that when you see or meet a black person, probably between the age of between the age of like twenty three and thirty five, I'm telling you, ninety percent of them are going to be Arsenal fans because, like you said, Nate, we had Ian Wright, we had Nicholas Anelka, we had Patrick Vieira, we had Ashley Cole, we had all these boys that were black boys. I think Arsenal were the first team to field ten outfield black players in one match, and that was unheard of in British sports. So Ian Wright was a guy that was. Well, I say Ian Wright, he was one of the trailblazers there. He was the one that was flying the flag loud for Arsenal, flying the flag for England. And yeah, he's he's the guy, man. I'm glad that he's doing bits now. I think another thing is as well, like, you know, obviously now there's kind of been a few documentaries. You know, the guy came from, you know, a very difficult and tough situation and upbringing. And I think, you know, whenever whenever you, you know, somebody's willing to share that story, it, it you know, it endears you to them even further. And I think, you know, He's, I've I've seen a few videos on YouTube where he's doing stuff with like some of these up and coming YouTube stars and, and whatever else. And the, the level of respect he has for them, you know, it's that kind of, he's just, his etiquette is just, you know, it's whether you like him or not, like you say, you know, if he's your cup of tea or not, you can't fault the guy, you know, certainly from his intentions and from how he uses his platform, uses his voice. And I think that's so important, you know, as, for black Britishness, as you said, Dom, like he's, it's a stalwart figure that we can all look at, appreciate and, and find common ground. And, you know, I think the video of the uh, Aubameyang signing, you know, just seeing him, you know, and I think on match of the day when he was saying, I'm going to ring Papa, you know what I mean? He's just, he's, he's, you know, he's probably breaking a few rules here and there and doing all sorts, but, you know, he's just unapologetically himself and it just endears us even more in his favour. And uh, we just need more. We, I wish there was more writers. I think that what I because I I think I'm probably the only person in the group that isn't a football fan. Like I'll, I'll I'll watch it, but it's it's really low down for me. But Ian Wright was always somebody that. It, so first of all, he looked like somebody that I would see in Brixton or Peckham. You know, he has the gold chain, he had the gold tooth, but there's also the thing that I find most interesting is that he only has 33 England caps. And I and it wasn't it was a good era. It wasn't a great era. It was the era of kind of at the start of his career. You had guys like Peter Beardsley. Obviously, Alan Shearer dominates that era um, with Teddy Sheringham. Obviously, Andrew Cole. But when you go back and watch him play, he you put him into the modern game. He has everything. He scored long range goals. He had the goals where he had to use a bit of skill to open up his body and score. Uh, he could score the close range goals. But the thing that always stands out if you watch a kind of Ian Wright compilation is the smile on his face. And it's not... It's it's one of those things where it's like... I think as black people, you can always be like, I don't want to smile too much because like there's a bit of a stigma. I don't want to be kind of seen as like one of these smiling guys where they're just smiling all the time. But what I also love, one of my favourite clips in it, you'll see it on... If you ever search for him on YouTube, it's one of the first ones that comes up is there's a game where they play, where Arsenal play Manchester United. 
And this is the Manchester United with all the kind of leaders and the hard men. So it's like Schmeichel and um, Roy Keane and all of them. And Wrighty has that Jamaican thing of walk softly but carry a big stick. And I don't know who on the United team said something to him. But there's one where the ball comes through and he just decides a two-foot jump on Schmeichel's leg. And then he just walks up like ain't no thing. Because everyone forgets what Peter Schmeichel said to him that game. Well, this, everyone forgets that. Well, this is it. What, what did he say? Because I don't know. Because I don't know the law. I don't know the law. The word that went around that Ian Wright stuck to and stands by this day is that he called him a black bastard. Oh, okay, Ian Wright's well, then... from a generation where he's going to snap his leg yeah. if you call him a black bastard. Yeah. It's on site. It's still so, no, no, no. Let's but, get but, one but this, clip. but this is part of it, though. Is that kind of like, and and we've moved to a place now where being black has kind of, if you're black and successful, there is, and and a high level athlete, there is a financial success to it. So you look at somebody like Anthony Joshua. Anthony Joshua got um, had that Jerome Miller spit in his face, and he was calm. He's had people do kind of just wild stuff, and he's calm. Ian Wright is of a generation where you got to remember that he was growing up during the Brixton riots. He was growing up with the stuff that was happening in Tottenham. You know, he was discovered playing on the football fields, I think, around Crystal Palace. Um, and it's like, I have to defend myself because I don't trust in a system. And to see somebody like that uh, maintain an authenticity and have the world bend back to them as opposed to bending towards the world. And even, and I think the most important bit was when he was open and said, do you know what? I have moved away from my community and I need to step up. Because how many people do we know, famous people, maybe even people that aren't famous that go, do you know what? I need to change my voice. I need to take the gold tooth out. Um, I need to, you know, make sure, you know, there's that great Dave Chappelle sketch where it's like, I'm gonna order the fish even though I want the chicken. You know, and doing all of these little things to fit in. And he has managed to walk this line where he's maintained that authenticity. And that's what I really respect. And Alana, what I'd be really interested in is your view. Obviously, you're a Manchester United fan and obviously you're one of the local ones coming from, you know, America. Um, but what's your kind of understanding and kind of, like, how does Ian Wright... Give me my yeah, 5,000. What, what do you know about kind of Ian Wright? Yeah, what do you know about Wrighty? <laughs> Well, this well, this is what I was going to say is I actually, I don't know much except for what I've seen recently, which are like some YouTube clips where you're right. He's totally like smiling and laughing. I think I saw, I saw that one, where, which I think is kind of famous where he's like with uh, Chris Sutton and Michael Owen and they're at the <laughs> guys asking him about uh, who had the best like left. You ain't getting in this party. You're not getting <laughs> in this party. <laughs> <laughs> get in this body, bro. Um, so I've seen those things, and it's so refreshing to see not only somebody who is unapologetically black be so celebrated, um, but to also see someone who is representing Britain. And I think as an American, you don't have a represent, you don't see a representation of black. British culture, which is in abundance when you actually live here. So I love seeing what I have seen of Ian Wright. I love seeing how much he is respected by Arsenal fans, the fact that he's an MBE. Um, and then uh, I think you touched on it, Nate, He how he still gives back to his community. I think I saw something where in 2008, he was doing a docu-series where he took young offenders and was trying to make a football academy out of that. And I don't actually know if that actually took off and was utilized at other um, sort of like incarceration centers for young men. But just the fact that 
he is staying so humble and true to his roots. And I'd like to see a lot more of that from presenters and people who are in the media. And I want to pick up on one thing that you said there, which is, and and I think it's central to why he has such love. He is one of the few black people that British people all across the political spectrum would say is patriotic. He is so openly in love with Britishness. Uh, he expre- you, you know, you, we all see the clips from the World Cup where England scored. He's up there celebrating. But you can go back over different European championships, different World Cups. He's been the same way the whole time. And he's one of the people where it's like th- he provides a, a route to Britishness, I think, for people that are of that are black but also of different heritages heritages where it's like it's very difficult to look at the England flag and not represent it with some of the you know the white van man actually he just by being himself reclaims it and makes it a different thing and I think that's so important I'd like to take it sort of back around to me saying there's sort of two ways I think of Ian right the second sort of aspect I want to pick up is you touched on Angelo he's he is a guy from the estate in, in South London and I, I remember seeing interviews with him and he's talking about how he saw David Rocastle playing for Arsenal. David Rocastle was from, the, he was the, the other local, he's one of his big mates and he was sort of the bigger brother figure to him and he went to Arsenal first so when he went from, he ended up playing for Palace and then he went to Arsenal and those two were massive mates and to have those two playing together was 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 a big thing like again I'm I'm not quite old enough to to have seen it firsthand, but I am old enough to remember because Rocastle went on to play for Leeds, who I'm a fan of. But yeah, those are two guys from South London who stepped over the terraces before the money really got there. I mean, towards the end of it, he was he was getting money. But so he's got fundamental understanding of what it means to play because you want to play, and it's interesting that he sort of I feel like. He represents being in the media and and being on the TV. He represents the first of someone like us to make it through their career, and get to the other side and be able to talk in the media and still understand what it was like before. Like, it's there are a lot of guys playing now who you're just going to find it very difficult to. I don't want to, you know, I'm not counting anyone's pockets, but someone like Callum Hudson Odoi, who's who's not yet 22, on 180 grand a week. Are we going to hear it when he's on the pitch talking about people don't care? You know, they cannot then talk about players earning money, players not being bothered. Like, they they they're not going to have that connection to to estates and communities and why they used to play and you know and and be able to sort of talk to people on that level. Whereas, right, you can. He's, he's like I say, he's he's so human and he's so himself, and it's just you know you you love to see it. Um, but also, uh, sorry, Nate, just want to jump in, mate. Yeah, no, I think you've you've hit the nail on the head. Like, he's someone who, you know, all heritage aside, you know, seeing someone who looks like me and, and kind of, you know, all that aside, the man just loves the game of life. You know what I mean? Like, he was, as you said, you know, he was always smiling on the football pitch. Even now when he talks about anything, he's so grateful. And I think that kind of, you know, gratitude and humility that he has is... Um, it's just something to, to kind of honour. And I'll just sort of, again, I just want to wrap this up by contextualising this conversation. You know, it's just, instead of it just being an Ian Wright loving, um, it's worth taking a minute to think about his contemporaries. Um, so to, to sort of understand that regard. So 
you think about people like like Cyril Regis, Trailblazer. Cyril Regis has died. His friend David Rocastle, he's died. Dylan Atkinson was killed. Justin Fashion, who killed himself. These are players like of a say a similar sign of um, profile at the same age. All young black men, and all died tragically in their own way before their own time. Um, so I think the fact that Wrighty did make it through that and did go through a lull and then came back and is is the person he is now. I think it's something for us definitely to to celebrate. So I mean, I've I've not even mentioned the sort of other half of that, which is sort of you've seen the way John Barnes has gone and. Yeah, so it's 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 good to one podcast, one podcast where we don't mention that blood clout's name, man. <laughs> Just one podcast. I it's I think it's it's contextually it's 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 something which is worth bringing up. You know, it's it's a good sort of corollary to the, the the career of Ian Wright. So, but yeah, can I can I just say that that it that, and it fits as a lovely kind of uh, coda to that is. Um, uh, Ava Vidal has written a really interesting article today for Galden about um, the amplification of uh, black voices that are kind of far right or fringe or don't in any way seem to be connected to the black community such as there is one. And I think that it would be really interesting if you, if you as listeners are interested in why kind of we have such an issue with John Barnes, that would be a really good place to start. Or just go through the pods. There's enough evidence and there's enough slander on that man's name. Go through the back catalogue. It's all good stuff. I, I think we've mentioned it previously and it, it worth, it's worth coming back to because one of the things in recent months which has given so many people joy and something to in, uh, enjoy in a time when if all the broadcasters aren't able to sort of get their get their hits off, we don't need them anymore. We don't need them anymore because online, stardom through social media, is being achieved through short form comedy, and there are so many different examples of them. One of them may or may not be in this call, and you know I think it's something which needs celebrating, and it's something which. I wouldn't say it's necessarily unique to Britain, but I'd say that Britain per head is is making better of this than other nations. Virtual bag to actual bag. Let's let's give let's let's give this man some applause. Let's give this oh, Stop this shit. Stop you, it right now. Right. Let's oh, give this man some fifty was it fifty pounds for a knee on all of you? <laughs> <laughs> Big man, I was. Listen. I mean, I, I was clapping for Munya, but that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> All love to Munya. No bad words to say about that guy. Get your bag on your marks. But yeah, I mean, it's like for me, the real delight. It's been. I don't even ex, like. I don't expect anything. I just know. Every day, I log on online, and I'm about to see something, and I'm about to laugh, and I'm about to get someone send me something, and. Like to put my professional hat on as a marketer, it's these days are an absolute dream. These times are a dream because there are like there's so much fresh uh, life and fresh ideas in a world which has been bereft of it for a long, 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 long time. And you know it makes me excited for when 
times when you know we can we can make things now we can make videos now but when things are properly unlocked next year i think you know britain's in for a golden age both of sort of comedy but marketing too um i feel like it's best here to open it up to angela i, I mean i i think I'd, I'd be really interested in one talking about who's inspired you and to then going on about sort of the process and how you how you sort of worked your way to this point you know now because I, I can't imagine when you started you thought that this was where you're going to end up yeah no definitely not um so it's 2020 let's be honest it's 2020 uh so i'm old enough to remember january uh when i graduated uh from the same university that i believe munya did his undergrad uh, so we are we are alumni buddies, um, and I was doing some supply teaching, but I was really just saving money to go traveling. Uh, I was going to do like six months to a year of traveling. Then obviously COVID came, and I think I caught it. Um, and when I caught it, I just I was in my house just waiting to die because, like, unlike I I don't have Donald Trump's two hospitals, do you know? So. It was uh, just lying on my couch waiting to die. And I was watching news 24-7, listening to uh, the Prime Minister just talk foolishness. And I was like, this guy sounds like every guy I went to school with. And I know I can do impressions of those guys. Do the impression, people start liking it. Do some more. And then at some point I just realized, you know what, this, uh, this COVID's not going away. It's not going away, so it makes sense to put some real effort into this. Like, the idea of traveling is dead. So, obviously, I've been doing it over the last few months. And one thing I want to say, kind of, from the jump is that when I see things, when I see, like, the Cabs family, when I see Munya Chihuahua, when I see Mo the Comedian, when I see Kalechi, and I see what they're doing, it makes me want to be better. It makes me go, let me put a bit more effort into the editing. Let me just do a second or third take of that. Um, and it's not even to necessarily, you know, secure a bag. It's to kind of, you know, iron sharpens iron. I'm watching these guys. Um, and so that's something that's just been, I'm watching those guys as much as anybody else's. As to the process, as, as everybody knows, there's so much news happening right now. I've got a friend... Um, who lives in Germany, and we had a 20-minute conversation yesterday where I caught him up on the news of the day before, but only up to about 2 p.m. Because I was talking about how I put out a black Boris because I thought that the big story was going to be the 16,000 names that were lost because they'd used Excel. And then, like, three or four massive stories happened afterwards, and there's it just feels like there is big world-breaking news happening 24 hours a day seven days a week and so for me it's about saying okay because at first I was putting them out every day but now it's trying to be a bit more strategic and kind of saying okay I'm going to focus on this event and it might be the event itself might be forgotten to the public imagination but if I put out something of quality then it doesn't matter um, and you can see that, like, I mean, Munya put out one a couple of days ago um, after the Pure Gym 12 Years a Slave uh, fiasco. And let's be honest, that story's already forgotten because Donald Trump had a 36-hour ketamine-binged Twitter rant. Um, 
you know, uh, you've got footballers and American footballers and basketball players and all the sports left, right and centre going down with COVID. Um, you've got Sajid Javid who said that Black Lives Matter isn't a force for good. Pretty Patel who's linked it to Marxism. So whilst that original story might not be as strong in the news, because what Munya did with it was so funny that it will last anyway. And what I'm really glad to see is when I see him doing an advert for a sporting brand. When I see uh, Mo Gilligan doing adverts and he's wearing his Arsenal top and um, you know he's advertising. When I see the Cavs family, they were doing an advert for Sky TV. And, it's, and I think what these brands are recognising is that television is still important. Because don't get me wrong, if somebody came to me right now and said, we want to offer you a television show, I'd be yes, please, with both hands. But a lot of the best television is coming from the internet. You can see that with Sarah Cooper. Sarah Cooper has had spots on lots of the late night shows. There's another guy, and it's really annoying because I wrote it down and my phone's just gone weird. But he does a spot on um, Jimmy Kimmel, but he started on the internet as well. And just this understanding that actually the virtual, like the, the, the currency nowadays is views. Because if you can say to um, an advertiser, look, every video that I put out gets 100,000 views. That is more than they can guarantee on three o'clock on a Thursday afternoon on TV. So for me, I'm obviously at a slightly different stage to those other people that I've mentioned. I think I'm a, you know, I haven't kind of got their numbers, but for me, it's not even about that. It's about putting out decent quality content and trusting in the process. Trusting that when I put something out like I put out today, and then I have somebody come to me and say um, that they want to, they want me to write about the creative process, trusting that that can lead to something else. And I'm really interested actually in your perspective, Dan, because obviously you're working with these big brands. Do you have a role in kind of guiding them to the, the things that you're seeing with these kind of creators that are getting the big hits and going viral? 100% and it's for us it's like we're trying to it's taken a long time to move people towards micro influencers and understanding like numbers aren't really that important what's important is the person who speaks uh who speaks to the people you want to speak to and uh, most sort of faithfully and authentically and you can see that's why that's why Munya is now managing to sort of maneuver in so many spaces and also Mo, Mo Gilligan but to be honest Mo Gilligan's popped so big now he's not a micro influencer he's just an influencer but I think what you understand and what so many people uh, who are successful in sort of online online comedy um, will understand is that the key to it is not so much the initial news it's understanding the conversation around the conversation understanding how people are going to respond and understanding what plays well and what doesn't play that well and what's going to get people to laugh and to engage and that you can yeah that that's that to me is the key and once you understand that that's where your sort of value is to, uh, to these brands and you know it's it's that's when you're seriously going to go places yeah and i think um you know the names we've mentioned um and the kind of whole point about you know a lot of tv comes from the internet now i've loved grime since i can remember um i remember sbtv i remember 
you know, um, all the platforms, you know, GRM Daily, um, when it was Grime Daily. Uh, me and Matt Hancock, you know, in the ra- I've probably been in a rave with him, you know, when I visited London. You never know, you know these. Um, yeah, he loves the scene, right? He loves Look, it. Um, There's actually a video of him at Lord of the Mics too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's in the back with Jammer. Um, but no, I think um, I've seen that. You know, I've seen the the journey of Jamal Edwards go from you know videoing Grime MCs, you know, like Mist who's now a huge superstar. Um, like, just... It's all... The blueprint's always been there, and now we're, like, we're kind of maturing as the generation. We're seeing it. We're, we've got people in positions, and people are looking for, you know, people that are, are able to comment on the madness that is, you know, currently going on and bring some humour to it. I think um, everyone we've mentioned has a has a seriousness to, to their message but it's delivered with such humour and, and playfulness that it just connects with more people. So, yeah, it's a really exciting time. I love it. I love loading up my social media and seeing, you know, Angelo knows I go hard for, for his stuff. You know, I show I show everyone. Um, but it's just the way in which we get to comment positively and critically on, you know, the, the ridiculousness. Rather than being outraged, we laugh about it. And I think that's, you know, something something we should certainly champion. Yeah, and I think the popularity of the short-form type of comedy is really suited to our generation. Um, You know, we are a generation with a shorter attention span, so these sort of short, punchy, uh, topical ways of delivering not just news, but, you know, conversation that's um, current, uh, that's perfectly suited for our generation, because previously, you know, I think it was YouTube. First, it was people would get started on YouTube and then they'd go on to do television and other things. But now it's, we have Instagram, we have TikTok, you know, RIP Vine. But it's clear that this is um, the direction that our generation is heading in terms of how it's consuming media and, and news. And, and so it, it makes total sense to me that this is now the platform that comedians are using to, to get started. And you can comment. It's the engagement, too. I mean, even with YouTube, there was the comments thread, but you couldn't. It's not like you got that instant feedback of this person commented. You've got a reply. Now you've got a like. It's so easy to share. Um, yeah, everything's just faster. And I think the medium is matching the method by which it's being delivered. I mean, we used to say when I was in journalism, never read the bottom half of the Internet. That's, and that, that holds true, especially on YouTube. Never read the comments. I think something else to be said is with regards to kind of being able to speak truth to power. And I think this, especially with Munya, and it's definitely something that I kind of try and do as well, is that I think that people accept the truth much more readily with a smile on their face than when they're being lectured. And you look at what some of the stuff that Munya's done, you look at what I've tried to do, it's, I'm basically looking for people to laugh and then go, oh, actually, I'm not sure if I should have laughed. At that but you do get the laugh we are living in such a I don't even want to say polarized because polarized suggests that extreme right and extreme left but if on one side of the argument is literal Nazism and you know forced sterilizations and uh, you know all the stuff that we're seeing I don't know what the middle point to that is but I know that if I can make somebody laugh, and I look at what Nabil did on Britain's Got Talent, where it was just he was just hilarious. That's and he still got complaints, you know, eight hundred and fifty odd complaints. 
but you remove the ability for, for people to actually kind of hate you just on appearance if you can make them laugh. And and I think that there is something to be said about Munya especially. Actually, there is a serious point to what he's doing. So like with the most recent one that, we, that we've seen him do, there is a serious point to... Yes, it's funny, but it also highlights just how ridiculous it is. Similar to the one that I've just put out, you know... And I've seen, I'm sure you've all seen it on Twitter today, all these kind of people in the arts saying, well, I've just done the government thing about saying what job I should go into, and they've recommended boxing. And it's like, you combine that with Matt Hancock being like, well, I like grime. Well, it's like, well, then support the arts. You know, and it's like, but if I could go on a rant, and nobody wants to listen to people ranting. You're, you're talking to yourself and the people that strongly agree with you. But if you can put out something that cuts across and hits the kind of white van man England flaggers, then you've got a chance of actually making a difference. And I think that's like one of the main things for me is like comedy is such a good tool to disarm people in a, in, you know, in an era where it's so easy to get offended, right? And people are actively looking for it. If you your kind of first engagement is that of trying to make them laugh, it's, you know, it's a bit more accessible. It's a, it's a bit less intense and, I think what the real, you know, the people we've mentioned and continue to mention, their art form is that balance of seriousness, right? There is a message to the comedy. I think um, uh, some of the videos that we've seen come from a, a place of ridiculousness, right? Like some of the stuff we're seeing now on a day-to-day -day basis, the only way you can process it, <laughs> uh, process it is by making a joke out of it because, you know, it's just, it's wild. Yeah, I think it... It's it's not only accessible; it prevents fatigue. Um, you know, that's I think what kind of led to the downfall of Facebook is after a while it was just like so many videos and posts about negativity and politics and things that are really important, but just you just get exhausted by it. And so I think the the important thing about the short form comedy um, on the various platforms that we have now is that you don't get fatigued by the message. You can watch something that has an important message and even a call to action, but if it's delivered in a comical, lighthearted way, you're not just going to try to ignore it. You're not going to get exhausted by it. I feel that. I feel that. I think what really, what really jumps out to me when I think about these black British comics and how well they're all doing is it's one of my favorite things about black people in general so i mean in britain we have the whole keep calm and carry on thing um but black people it just seems to be what was the title of the um what's that little what's that little comedian called <laughs> little black one what's his name <laughs> kevin hart that annoying little one but he's got a stand-up cat williams no 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 not that little is uh one of his stand-ups was called laugh at my pain and yeah. I think that's what black people seem to be amazing at. And whenever things are bad, we seem to be able to find this little, little bit of humour in it. Or even if there is no humour in it, we'll, we'll find something. We'll find something that we can laugh about. And what has been incredible with the last, the last few years with black British people in particular on social media is if you look back 30, 40 years ago, I mean, Lenny Henry speaks quite openly about this. You used to have to tailor your comedy to a whiter audience but black people have always been at the forefront so if we think about the states you have the likes of um, Richard Pryor you got your Bernie Max, you got your Dave Chappelle's who always managed to cross over even 
telling jokes that weren't really they weren't really accessible to a lot of people that were listening to them and that's what it feels like in the uk now so a lot of the jokes and a lot of the humor that we're seeing within these videos are things that we might bust jokes about in the group chat if you go down to the barber shop you're gonna have a laugh and a joke about these very similar things but we've got to a stage now where these jokes are universally funny they're universally funny because other people because of social media other people can feel them now and it feels like it's a kind of turning point in terms of where British humour is British humour was one thing and it now seems to be very much a different thing because of the black influence that has that has come into that humour this is it for, for me as well I feel like what I find most promising is I, I I like people to use their success in one area to get them to wherever they want to be or to whether they can be so I mean they'll start doing the Instagram stories or you'll start doing little Instagram jokes and then it leads you to doing like YouTube longer form videos and then that leads to you doing presenting shows and it leads you to being Mo you can start again RS you'll start with doing a little skit and then you suddenly you've got a BBC TV show it doesn't quite go how you'd like to this is sort of sorry Coyote Awumi who's roll safe um, I, was, I was actually speaking to Anafiok Ekpudum in, in my Instagram live about this and he was saying that it's important that he sort of use the vehicle that he, if, if you've got the IRS thing and regardless of where that goes he's now making the exact comedy he wants to do which is his Enterprise show on BBC which is sort of it's kind of like um, a British Atlanta it's got the same kind of mood if you've seen it like that but it's it's just now all our eyes are on social media and all eyes are on this kind of fun comedy like it just opens so many doors for people to sort of show the breadth of their creativity it again Angelo is the same like you start in doing these videos and it's just a stepping stone to get people to listen to your voice and then from there you can sort of branch out say what it's it's quite an interesting story that with RS because I remember when Big Shaq broke um, and Michael Dapar went went far with Big Shaq I was quite annoyed I was like but RS was the original and RS was funnier so it's a shame that he didn't come at the time that Michael Dapar did with his but now I look back at it and I'm like, exactly to your point there, Dan, he can make what he wants to make now because RS was big within a certain group, within a certain segment of the population, he's not typecast now. When you look at Michael Dapper, and I know he keeps putting out different content, new content, but it doesn't seem to carry that same knock now because he has been typecast because he was Big Shaq and Big Shaq was playing in nightclubs all over the world. I was in Las Vegas and I heard Big Shaq, Big Shaq being played. And when someone goes that clear, and almost, I think more people would know Big Shaq than the person behind Big Shaq. A lot of Americans, when I were out there, they thought that Big Shaq was a legit artist. So like when you get to that level, it's kind of like, well, where do I go from here? I'm kind of hamstrung now. But what was his name, Dan? What's the RS creator called? What's his name? K.O.D. He's got that opportunity, like you said, now with Enterprise to actually go through and do his own things now and actually shape what the rest of his career looks like. So... I think that's another point, isn't it? The the long-term view. So a lot of these people are making great moves with this micro content, with this content, which is what, 30 seconds to two minutes long and brilliant and getting that quick bag. But then it's also giving people an opportunity to go and shape the rest of their career and open up doors for other people who look like them, who are from the same places as them, um, which is for me the most important part of all of it. Because we all like to have an, a laugh and a joke, but what does that mean if there isn't a good end product to it? And I think that's, like I said, like 
the everyone's learning how to to kind of use it not just as a as a bit of relief and a bit of a joke but you know I think about some of the stuff and some of the projects I've been involved in you can trace a lot of them back to social media connections and interactions and little ideas and comments um, and I think now there's you know there's a certain freedom that comes with doing it as well you know you get to present your your voice your opinion your perspective so freely um yeah it's uh it's really exciting time even last night you know i was tagged in a thread um about kind of young black talent and some of the names on there i've discovered some really interesting kind of profiles and you know just um it's so easy now to find good examples of of comedy of of like satire of you know even just information as well um yeah it's just super exciting and it doesn't all have to be comedy as well. So, I mean, I don't know, have any of you guys seen Rocks, which just came out on Netflix? So it's about, I can't remember who the writer is, but it's about some young black girls in Dalston. Um, and one of their parents basically just goes, hey, well, and it's a story about this girl having to effectively get her brother through the next few days because they don't know where the money's going to come from, where her mum is, or when her mum's going to come back. And it kind of... This whole this whole era that we're in right now, where we're hearing these creatives, these black creators, we're hearing these original black stories. It might start with comedy because that's usually the easiest way to access it. But then, as soon as you start to get more used to hearing these black stories, and you get to see some really empowering and powerful messages come through as well. And I implore you all to watch Rocks. I think it only came out this week, but it's it's amazing. And it's kind of like we used to only see one part of Black Britain, which was the gangs in London, the the little youths in London. Now we're starting to see that, yes, the story might be in London again, but it's a completely different side, a completely different avenue that's gone down rather than things that we used to see. Um, so I think the more of these creatives that we get, the more of these stories that we hear, and then the more black faces, even if they do all start in London, then that gives people like us on this platform the opportunity to go out and tell our tale as well. Can they not be in London? I mean, I know I would love that. Please, there's 50, 50 million other people outside of the capital, guys. You know, but um, like I say, just to, to say to your point there, Dom. Um, I think I spoke about him before. Damson Idris, who's the leader on Snowfall. He's sort of the lead out from Snowfall, and he again started on Instagram just doing monologues. He went to drama school, and he's he's. And most people don't know he's a Brit. But I remember seeing, like, years ago, he was just doing monologues to camera on his Instagram, and he got spotted by the late, great John Singleton. And then he went over there, and, you know, the rest the rest was history. But it's, 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 it, is, it is warming to the heart. And I just want to sort of say as well to brands, please, if you're going to hire these people, and if you're going to hire creators and creatives... You've got to let them run the show. You hired them for a reason. Don't hire someone and then foist your own lack of creativity and your own lack of planning and your own lack of thought on them because the result's not going to be what you think and then ultimately you're not going to get what you want and you're going to blame them, but they'll go on and be a success anyway. So if, if advice for brands and for marketers looking to hire creators is please let them let them drive um, if you want them to get in the car, Angelo, what do you think about that? Yeah, it's for me. It's not even. I don't even want to say that these brands lack creativity, but what they might 
not have is the different voice that they hired the creator for. You know, the we've spoken in so many of our old podcasts, check them out, about companies that have historically hired for culture uh, culture fit rather than culture ad. And what you get is a, a, a homogeneity of voices. So if you're going to, you know, if everybody kind of looks the same and has the same kind of... Uh, interests and hobbies and went to the same four or five universities and are in the same sort of socioeconomic group if you bring in somebody that is completely different to that what you don't want is to kind of kind of and i it's going to sound cold but i don't want the nandosification where it's like we want you to fit in with what we've got and still be relatively urban it's like no no let me drive you're just chicken and chips you know, and it's like, actually, I've got enough about me that I can make it work. You're hiring me because you've seen my numbers. You're hiring me because you've seen my ability to reach people. I don't need to fit into your, in this analogy, chicken and chips. Let me show you a different meal. Let me show you a different way of doing things that can still be successful. I mean, I, I, I just want to say I'd have used Subway because we all know everything in Subway tastes the same. And I've used Subway there. Um, by <laughs> Nando's, we will, we will work with you. Everything <laughs> on that menu is delicious. Hold tight, hold tight, hold tight, Nando's. That's a black man that was raised in Yorkshire, right there. Nando's is dead, mate. True that. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I've never. It's very hard to have dead chicken. <clears throat> I wouldn't ever say chicken's dead. They just, it's just bad chicken is still better than most things. <laughs> Nando's is just so blech. It's like it'll do if there's nothing else that's close by, but it's just, it's not great. And I'll I'll never understand the nation's fascination with it. It's just, go down to Sam's Chicken. Sam's got better chicken than Nando's. How about some good old old American Dixie Chicken? How about that? Nah, no way. Not unless you want to spend the next day on the toilet. Are you normal? Nah, no way. Are you normal? Absolutely not. I don't have, I probably have Nando's once a year yeah same but it's enough I'm just keeping that just don't close doors don't close doors <laughs> Sam, we'll get big enough we'll be begged we'll be begged for these endorsements mate we don't need Nando's I'll say yeah quickly on this I just I realised the other day because I, I popped on YouTube and I saw a video pop up six it's five year anniversary of, of your, your man the chicken the chicken connoisseur no he's back he's back making videos yeah he's the grand old age of 27 hold tight uh, the chicken connoisseur now is back doing his thing inconsistent but people loving it so I respect it you know what he's I one of the he's it. one of the trailblazers people don't put enough respect on his name because I mean the product is the product but the way that he put it out there the way that it was edited we'd not seen anything like it before and now there is no chicken shop date there is no Amelia de Moldenberg without the chicken connoisseur and she's putting up big numbers now, so large up the chicken connoisseur. We're going to get to, with it being Black History Month special, a segment on black British faces through history. People you may not have heard of, people who've achieved, people who've overcome, people who, to be honest, have just survived in times when everything was against them. So we've all done a bit of homework here, and we've picked out a name you may not have heard of, and... Yeah, I mean, this is this is going to be this is going to be fun. It's going to be educational. I learned a lot when I was sort of digging in the archives 
for a name worthy of the first episode. So, guys, should I go first? They seem pretty happy about it. So, for my famous blackface, I'm going to go with the only black man to play rugby for England for the first 117 years of international rugby up until the year of my birth, 1988. I thought that was kind of mad. And originally, you know, when I was looking through people to look for, I thought, you know what? Let me look back to see maybe the, the first black MP, because that was probably ages ago, probably someone really interesting. And <laughs> there was four of them. And again, that was in 1987. So, you know, I thought, oh, I'll settle for this one because, yeah, they've got a more interesting story. And I did say the first black man to play rugby union for England, 117 years. I am a man of the North and I am going to get hammered here. He did play rugby league as well. He's a rugby league legend too, just never played international rugby league. Um, so I will not have any slander. If you want to go and do your own homework, and uh, I will take written apologies, especially from you, Angela. So Jimmy Peters, born in 1879, and at 38 Queen Street in Salford, in Lancashire, man in the north, and he's born to a Jamaican father with a pretty, you know, he's got a pretty interesting story. So his dad was mauled to death in a training cage by lions. He was born in a, you know, a circus family. He was, you know, black family. Obviously, they were in the circus. And sadly, his mother wasn't able to look after him. So what she did is she just sort of gave him away to another sort of neighbouring circus troupe uh, as a bareback horse rider, you know. Went away, carried on doing that. and then, But unfortunately, he fell off the horse at the age of 11, gave it up and travelled through a succession of orphanages, including one just around the road from here, it's not down the road at all. It's in Southwark, where the sporting bug bit him. Now, Jimmy Peters was an athlete, and he sort of smashed it at everything. And, but, you know, he wasn't pro yet, so he trained in printing, and he trained in carpentry, and his work eventually took him to the southwest and Bristol, where he started playing as a fly-off for Ding's Crusaders, and unfortunately, it's when he got to Bristol where things started to go bad as a black man. Now, obviously, back in them times there, at the turn of the 20th century, so 1900, um, people didn't really like black people back then. They weren't used to seeing them. And a committee member at Bristol Rugby Club resigned in protest at his selection. A local newspaper decided him as a pallid blackamoor and complained he was keeping a white man out of the side. Uh, but fortunately, Jimmy was able to get away and he moved to Plymouth Rugby Union in 1902, became a star player, and Devon won the county championship in 1906. And eventually, his ability with a rugby ball overcame a nation's raging racism and he got called up for England. So October through to December 1906. Sadly, after making a couple of appearances for England where he set up two tries and in his second game he scored a try, um, he was playing for his local club when the touring South African Springbok side refused to take the field if this black guy was playing was playing for the opposition. So, you know, there's a bit of controversy going on there. England was set up to play South Africa 
and Jimmy Peters sadly lost his place in the team because you know they wanted to they wanted to play they wanted to play the Springboks, and then eventually that sort of controversy blew over. His his, his ability triumphed again. He played three more times before politics eventually drove him out of rugby union. He then played a couple more games back in rugby league where he sort of sealed his name as as a, a cross code legend, Jimmy Peters. The only black man for 117 years of international rugby to play for England until 1988. We're going to move on to the next person. That was captivating. Next person on the list. Captivating. Cheers, Dom. I was going to go with Paul Stevenson and educate you all on the Bristol bus boycotts. But then I thought, that's too recent. He's only a couple of years older than my grandma. And... Yeah, I want to go a bit deeper just to show that there were some blacks in the UK long, 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 long time ago. So I've gone with Bill Richmond. So Bill Richmond, the pugilist. So he was born as a slave in the home of the Wu-Tang Clan, Staten Island, but moved over to the UK, I think to York, in the 1780s. So it were a few years ago. Um, and when he moved over here, became a cabinet maker, and then he married a white woman. He married a white woman, which did not go down very well with the locals there, um, because like Dan said, the Blackamoors were not very well received back in those days. Um, and he happened to be married to this white woman called Mary in Wakefield, so just down the road from me and Dan. Um, and when he was in Wakefield, married to this woman, as you can imagine, there were lots of times when he was out and about and people would say the odd black devil, the odd uh, little little bit of an insult here and there, um, and he became very adept with his fists. After having a string of fights, some legal, some completely unlicensed, he ended up moving to London because it all came a bit too much for him. Um, and when he moved to London, he became one of the most prominent fighters in Europe. Um, to the point where I think he was one of the ushers at the coronation of, I want to say it was Charles IV. Um, so he became quite a distinguished gent. Um, and I think David Olasoga, he did a show called Black British, um, and there's a book as well. And on this show, what he did was, when uncovering these, these um, notable people from British history, these notable black people, he put up a plaque in in various notable places and there is actually one in Westminster um, a pub that was frequented by Bill um, so you can go and see I can't remember the name of the pub but I will put it in the notes after the pod Bill Richmond one of the earliest and best British <laughs> fighters is a black man born in 1777 and died in the 1830s you know you mentioned David Olusaga's book um, black and British and you know I mentioned I think in a previous pod one of the things I did over lockdown was just read about kind of like black Tudors black and Moors, and just read you know black British history and Dom I had to trump you you know I had to go even further back because when I was reading that book I came across John Blank um, and John Blank was a black mu uh, musician they think he's of African heritage and he came with Catherine of Aragon um, as part of her entourage. So for those that are not too uh, up on their Tudor history, she did eventually become um, one of Henry VIII's wives. 
but what I really wanted to point out and why this um why this why this character and John st- uh, struck a chord is because he actually petitioned Henry VIII for a pay rise, but not just for a pay rise, for a backdated pay rise. So the man knew his worth in, you know, we're talking the 1500s um, here, you know, and was not scared of, you know, writing, pe- petitioning Henry VIII, who we all know has got a bit of a bit of a reputation, you know, for having a short temper. Um, but because he was such a, a skilled and talented trumpet player, he was able to kind of convince Court, you know, of his worth. He's actually embroidered into a few of the kind of tapestries from that time, um, which I encourage everyone to go take a look at because they're just beautiful anyway. So, yeah, for me, it was John Blank. You know, there's very little about the personality of the man, which I think is why I like the story of him petitioning. You know, it shows the kind of character he was um, as best we can kind of see other than how he's depicted in in these um, tapestries. So, yeah, John Blank, trumpet player to the royal court. I want to talk about um, someone, a woman, a little bit in more recent history. Um, A woman by the name of Olive Morris. Um, Some people may have heard of her because she is quite recent, but a lot of people, too many people, have not heard of her, and she is an important figure in black British history and activism in particular. She was a Jamaican-born activist, who moved to South London, um, and then later in life she would go to study at at Manchester Uni. Um, But she was a Marxist, a black feminist, radical, so check, 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 ticking all the boxes. Um, And she was mostly active in the 70s. She fought against class and sexual and racial oppression. She was a she was an important figure um, in the fight for squatters' rights and in rights for the poor. She co-founded the Brixton Black Women's Group and the Organization of Women of Asian and African Descent. Um, and she did all of this before she was the age of 27. And to me, that's the most impressive point because, you know, sometimes we... Th- we look back at key figures in black history and you know some people don't even get started in their activism until the age of 27 and she was able to accomplish so much across the whole of England um, in just a short period of time. And that is because she actually died at the age of 27 from cancer and so I just I was just so inspired in, in learning about her because it really just shows that you can do a lot of, with your time on this earth. Um, and, you know, 27, that's a year younger than me. Uh, so it just shows like how much I I could be doing to to support the communities that I'm in. Um, and, you know, I love that she was an immigrant. I love that she was a woman. I love that she was a Marxist. As I said, she was ticking all the boxes for me. Um, and I love that she was an actual fighter, not just a, that's not just an analogy for who she was. She was an actual fighter. In fact, her activism started because she came to the defense of a Nigerian diplomat who was being hassled by some white cops while she was here in England. And those cops beat the living shit out of her to the point where 
um, her boyfriend at the time said that he couldn't even recognize her when she got out of jail because they also arrested her. Um, and I love the fact that even after having gone through this, um, something that was humiliating because this was done in public, something that was violent, she was able to transform what had happened to her into fuel for her fire. Um, so yeah, that's Olive Morris. Wonderful, inspiring, powerful, amazing woman. Uh, my person is Samantha Tross. Samantha Tross was the first, is, is she still alive, still kicking, the first black female orthopedic surgeon in the UK. Uh, and and uh, she gained that title in 2018. So it's mad that we're still getting these firsts very, very recently. Um, so her story, she's born in Guyana in 1968. Um has four, uh, like she's uh, one of four children. And her story is really interesting for me in how relatively normal it seems. So um, she experiences death uh, as, a, as a child. Um, she says, um, in her own words, she said that her grandparents lived with them and died with them and she thinks it had an impact. Um, and she had said from the age of seven that she wanted to be a doctor. Um, so she uh, graduates from UCL in 1992, uh, pursues a career in surgery, um, goes from cardiology to psychology to orthopedics. Um, and what I find interesting is that's kind of 92 uh, graduation and it's 26 years later uh, that she kind of becomes this orthopedic surgeon, which really kind of gives us a lesson in perseverance you know them times there where we're like i've been working at this thing for six months and it ain't happened yet it's like well go for another 25 and a half years and see where you are then um and what i like about her is whatever interviews she you see her in and she's she's done quite a few um what is what i always appreciate is she recognizes the significance of her being the first black woman to do it she doesn't underplay it she doesn't say it's not a thing she kind of recognizes that no this is a thing but i'm taking it in stride and that i'm here not because i'm a black woman but because i'm good at my job that actually i make a difference and i think that is such a powerful lesson and a powerful message to put out there that actually um you can, uh, you really can do anything if you're willing to put the time in. So what make what might take another person ten years? Okay, it might take you twenty six and a half. How much do you want it? And the thing that drew me to her more than anything is I'm pretty sure, well, I'm certain in fact that we are linked because she worked at the hospital that I was born in. Um, obviously, I'm a bit older than than when she was there. But I like that there's a kind of circular symmetry to it. Um, and I also like, as I say, that she doesn't hide her blackness. She doesn't hide her womanness. She recognizes the power of both of those things. And what I like is if you listen to her, she always talks about how one of the first orthopedic surgeons that she came across was actually a woman. And I think that there was something that broke down a barrier for her there. So hold tight, Dr. Tross. 
Um, I love that you're still alive. I love that you're kind of doing the work. And I hope that in 10, 15 years, kind of when we've got hundreds of black women orthopedic surgeons, we still recognize uh, the original uh, because that's pretty amazing for me. In the words of Mark Ingram, big trust, big trust. Um, yeah, some great selections there, guys. And um, I'm glad we've got real sort of range of experiences and we've crossed history and places and we've finished on someone who's still out here, very much so. I think we're going to finish up with what used to be a beloved former section. And it used to be pick songs we used to <clears throat> to but what we're gonna do is we're gonna remix it this month and we've each picked a song that is somewhat of a black british anthem to us hmm. to us so i think it'd be good here to start with alana because i don't think i've let speak first yet and also the fact that she's not british will be make it very interesting to see what what your interpretation is alana of uh, of britishness it will be interesting. It will be interesting. I also think it will be quite rogue, but I have a good reason for it. So I'm going to go with Shy FX every day. Because one of the... So yes, I am American, obviously, if you couldn't tell. But I'm a huge Anglophile, and one of the reasons I've always been obsessed with England and the reason that I live here now is because of the superiority of lots of music, specifically electronic music, specifically bass-driven electronic music. Um, and Shy FX is just the one for me. Like, he is what got me. I'm a big drum and bass fan. Uh, when he goes, call out the rave, girl. Call out the rave, girl. <laughs> <laughs> that is me. I was like, yeah, that's bullshit. Um, so yeah, I'm going with everyday shy effects. Whilst you're on here, can you please apologise for Skrillex? Because that is the closest you've got to bass-driven electronic music. I will not. He's from Salt Lake City, Utah. I don't associate. Absolutely do not associate with that. But I, will, I make no apologies. You can apologise for yourself. <laughs> and all of Salt Lake City, Utah as well. For me, this was really easy because I, I, I kind of came at it from what was the first kind of album that I remember that was really like black British for me and, and kind of you know that I put the headphones in and uh, you know tried to shove the discman in the in the schoolboys pocket um, so for me I've gone for Craig David seven days Just because that that whole album, Born to Do It, was like, yo, I still play it now. But, you know, I think everyone loves that song. Everyone sings along. You know, it's an anthem. But Rendezvous was the best song on that album. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, it's not... We, yeah. We're not going to just be disrespecting Phil Me and Mate, I. That was, that's what we're yeah, not but it was all... I mean, so, you know, I'm not claiming it's the best song on the album, but it's, you know, one of the most iconic. And right. it will always, like I say, always get a good sing-along. Real ones... Craig David, Booty Man, Deep Cut. Deep <laughs> Booty Man! <laughs> Booty Man, Deep Cut! I knew you were going to say that! That's a bold title. I make no apologies. I make no apologies. 
My DM is open, ladies. Angelo. Angelo. Chill is out here shooting his shot. Moving swiftly on. Right. So, um, I'm going to, I want to take you back to 2007 in Carnival. And one of the genuinely most terrifying moments of my entire life. So at Carnival, and if, if you ever go to Carnival, you know that some of the loudest and wildest sound systems are on that right on that corner of Portobello Road. And, uh, and I was walking there in 2007, and why this DJ decided whilst I was there to put on the British National Anthem, Talking the Hardest by Gigs, it, I'm not even joking, it caused an actual stampede to the point that the police had to tell him to stop the track. If you're talking the hardest, gigs better pop up in your thoughts as an artist. Jeez! Talk in the market, everybody wants to know where walk in the park is. Walk in the park. And then you get that great thing that you sometimes get in carnival, where it's like, people, I need you to move! I need you to move! Everybody keep calm here, they'll shut us down, otherwise they'll shut us down! Absolutely terrifying. Talking the hardest when it first came out, just it changed the face of music. Now, obviously, we can go back and look at other tracks that did it that decade. Like, I'll never forget the first time uh, Lethal Bizzle came out with Forward, and that did crazy bits. But talking the hardest, Portobello Road, 2007, with my with my shaved head and my and my vest and my shorts, thinking I was bad. And then all of a sudden being like, not only am I about to be crushed to death, I'm definitely being robbed right now. <laughs> like, it was a terrifying, beautiful, wonderful experience. And that track was never not going to be mentioned here because that track is, for me, the best of British. And I'll finish with this. There is a pub in uh, Hull where there's a picture of a bunch of guys in Arsenal shirt from the 80s and it just says, it just has the quote, walk in the party, sporting Armani. And I'm like, that's when you know that you've made it when you're on just a random pub wall, being quoted on a random pub wall in the northeast. So yeah, gigs, talking the hardest. Um, for me, so when I thought about this, I mean, there's all kinds of grime tracks. Craig David was obviously up there as well. But then I was thinking, it's my mummy's generation was the first generation for, of a lot of black people that were born here. And the music that they were coming out with in the 70s and 80s in particular, there's nothing but bangers. Just bangers. So initially I was thinking, do I go to the yard side and go with Maxi Priest? Because if you don't know Maxi Priest, look up Maxi Priest. Ooh, Lock up some Master Priest. Ooh, then I thought, yes, I, I know you know, yes, Angelo, yes, I know yes, you yes. Know. But then I thought, for me, I like yes. my 80s groove. The ones that are going to get your aunties up there shaking a foot. So I have to go for loose ends. And the reason I'm going for loose ends, I'm going to go for. I'm going to go for slow down. I'm going to go for slow down. Could be hanging by a string, hanging on a string, but slow down. One of the things about black British exports to the USA is because there wasn't a market for it over here. It had Black Britain on lock. It had Top of the Pops on lock. 
and was that good that it went over and locked off the USA as well. A lot of people think that they are American, but Loose Ends, Hail from London, Bad Boy Band, Bad Boy Group, listen to Slow Down by Loose Ends. That's my track. Great choice. It's a great choice. So, I mean, I went, I went a bit of a left field choice here. So, I like all sports, you know, oh, that's, that, that is my field, that's my thing. Um, and I always used to remember like watching cricket growing up and West Indies seemed to be on TV dupping England every time and things were going well things were always going well and then towards the end it's just like at some point Walsh <laughs> and Ambrose are coming back on and they're going to go through the lapels and every single time and I remember when, as, as I got older eventually when there was rain delays which there was always rain delays because they were playing cricket in England in September and they'd show highlights of like previous tours and they'd show when West Indies were good and I used to remember I always just remember the show highlights from the 60s and the 70s and they'd show videos of West Indies come to tour in London and when they were playing at the Oval and they were playing at Lords and you'd see like the droves of West Indians coming in and they like like the happiness and the pride on their face when England were just getting absolutely slaughtered by Viv and by Supercat and Malcolm Marshall and Joel Garner and Michael Holden and for some reason the song that always seemed to be playing in my mind was uh, the Liquidator, Harry J All Stars. And it's like tied to that, the memory is like of these West Indians in London, like either at the Oval, on the pitch, or outside the Oval, or outside Lords, just going absolutely berserk, like pretty much running London and like, I just I just those two things are just really sort of intertwined with me even though it's a time that I wasn't alive but I've got really vivid memories of that so I went for the liquidator and then the good Chelsea boys came and ruined it mm. <laughs> yeah they did yeah but they can they can never take away what it is I mean, oh exactly they've co-opted it but it's not it's not about really it's not about not Chelsea. at all not that not that era of music man that era of reggae and ska man it was I say it like I was there, but this is the kind of thing that when I used to sneak into those parties that my grandma and granddad were having when I was three, four years old and it was way past my bedtime, it's that era of music that I remember. So that for me is my very formative black British experience. I was going to say, that's just a sort, that's the thing I, I'm just so upset with, kind of missed it. And you, you spoke about then, Angela, like the end. But we are, whether we like it or not, whether we admit it or not, we're at the end of the sound system. Not in El Carnival, we'll go on, but it'll keep getting more and more sanitised and we're not going to see that, you're not, we're not going to walk through Brixton and it's just like someone's just jamming it on the corner, like I just, that part of me, I just feel really sad, I've been in London eight years and that's, that's gone. You know Huddersfield's one of the homes of the sound system as well? Huddersfield, I hear that. yeah, Huddersfield is one of the pioneers. Huddersfield, London, I think, but there's like three or four places you just wouldn't expect outside London. And Venn Street in Huddersfield is one of the one of the pioneers of it. It took so much of my energy not to pick a DJQ like classic from the Baseline era <laughs> because I know it won't hit with the audience. But when I was like 13 to 16, whoa, 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 wobblers everywhere, four by four, you know, the whole sound run, like, you know, Huddersfield, I remember college, you know, sending them them tracks. It Mate, was, Brandy uh, and Coke VIP, man. Oh, <laughs> Jesus, yeah. So what's particular, what I found really interesting is I think that um, me and Nate have picked tracks that are from almost like 
when you kind of move out of the house almost into your own experience and Dom and Dan you've kind of leaned into the tracks from that kind of remind you of kind of family and home and being young and the track that I was going to pick which would have definitely fit more into like your yours your two Dom and Dan was I was going to go for um Omar there's nothing oh. like this there's nothing like this Because the, the way that track had it on lock and still has it on lock, my man is still getting booked out at the Jazz Cafe and all people want to hear is that one song. That man's got an entire discography but people are going there for that one song. But it's a perfect song. But I just decided to go for one that was much more from kind of like stepping out. Um, but yeah, the family tunes, the family tunes are just... They, they hit different. They really do hit different. And Dan, you're right that it does feel... Don't get me wrong, like... Like, like Getz and Skeppy have just released a track which is just unbelievable, but I don't know that, you know, we'll be playing that while the kids are running around and the, the food's cooking and the coleslaw's being made and the apple pie's in the oven, you know what I mean? So, but maybe we're just glorifying the past because we were it young. It might have been mid-90s, Dom, what you but when Omar dropped, there's nothing like this. I'm telling you now, when my firstborn arrives... If he is, that song being played from my bedroom is about to get a sibling. Because that is, to this day, one of the coldest tracks of all time. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. There. I mean, we, we could go on and talk about music for hours, but I think it's best we don't. Um, guys, I think that wraps up. That wraps up today's episode. Alana, I'm just going to give you a chance to say something else there, because these lot just rattling down memory lane. No, 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 I mean, what's funny, obviously, because I was introduced to British music while I was still in America, um, my specific memories of British music were it was only the the music that would be played at like 3am on the sort of like, alternative, like, indie, I don't even know what station it was, but it was I would actually wake up, set an alarm to 3am, specifically to hear British music, and this was in the days where, like, you couldn't Shazam, you couldn't, like, Google lyrics to to figure out what the song was, so I was just waiting and waiting and waiting, basically, until I came to England to discover, like, what grime was, what <laughs> garage was, which I learned, it wasn't garage when I came over here, um, drum and bass, like, all of that, so my, I kind of got, like, a crash chorus in British music, but it was obviously something that I really craved. Um, and it is something that is uniquely British and you cannot, it is not well replicated anywhere else, particularly not in the States. If you were staying up until 3am to listen to Shy FX, I'm glad you weren't here for the MCAT days. That's all I'm going to say. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't have made it past 2000. Black <laughs> uh, guys in a box does not endorse the use of yeah. illicit drugs in any way, shape, or form. Nor do I. It was it was plainly an observation. Yeah. So just 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 to give you some perspective of my introduction, I first touched down in the UK on New Year's Eve in Manchester. Went straight to a Warehouse Project. Oof. And that was my like, oh, 
This is the UK. That's wicked. You say went Love straight that. there. It's not all Harry Potter and tea and crumpets or any of that. It doesn't, doesn't kick off till 12 anyway. You'd have been there early. <laughs> it's like 12 till... Yeah. I remember getting there for the first time and I was like, is, is this going to start or what? Emma's like, what are you talking about, mate? goes on to like six. <laughs> Jesus. But yeah, I mean, just to double down on that. Plant foods for plants. Horse tranquilizers for horses. Right, guys. <laughs> and and, and the president of the United States, apparently, as well. <laughs> yeah. This man. Ending on a laugh. We're going to see you soon. Next one is education. And, yeah, we've got some really good stuff lined up. Thanks for listening. Peace, we guys. Out.